Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And what are we doing right now in the month of September is we're walking through our vision and values as a congregation. Back in the spring of 2021, your elders got together, all the elders, not just the ones who were serving that year, and spent several months praying and meditating and walking through the scriptures, trying to discern who we thought God wanted us to be as a congregation. And so we want to kind of have the, tr- the new tradition of every fall, sort of near the beginning of the school year, going through that vision and values again. Uh, when we get there, in a little bit, we'll be looking at a fee, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles if you like. It's found on page 11 in your order of worship. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use that pew Bible or chair Bible there in front of you. And the passage is found on page 922 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take that one home with you as our gift for you. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, But before we go to the Lord's scriptures, let's go to him again in prayer. A gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. And as we come before your word this morning, Lord, open the text up to us. May we see your truth. May we see your agenda and not our own. May we submit, Lord, to your ways over our ways. Oh, by your spirit, may we see the gospel and be empowered by it, Lord. Oh, in Jesus' name, amen. So our vision as a church is to be a robust church, joyfully united to Jesus, our community, and each other. And we get that from uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 here. He says this, the exalted Jesus, having been resurrected, having been raised to his throne, says this, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so from this passage, we get our four values that we kind of want to zero in on as a church. Our four values are... Next slide, there we go. Our four values are fellowship, training, equipping, and missions. So we get that from the phrases, builds itself up in love, building up the body of Christ to equip the saints for the work of ministry. These four core values, fellowship, training, equipping, and missions kind of form how we want to do church, so to speak. And so Sycamore seeks then to build disciples through building in, building up, building well, and building out. For ease of remembering, those four core values are live, grow, thrive, and then go. And this morning, we're going to look at the value of grow. So I'm going to do this by walking through four simple little questions. First question is, what is growth? Well, in this Ephesians passage we just looked at, we see it's building up the body of Christ. As I mentioned earlier when we talked about Thrive a couple weeks ago, the whole book of Ephesians is laid out, it seems, almost as if Paul is staring at a set of blueprints as he's writing this book under inspiration because this construction motif kind of forms the umbrella for most of the images in the book of Ephesians. And so building up then is an architectural term from the time. It means to create a structure for growth. If you perhaps have an older translation of the English in front of you, you might see it translated instead of building up as edifying the body. What Paul is telling us here is that the resurrected Jesus gives gifts to the church to build it up, to create a structure, to make it strong, to make it secure. 
outside of the New Testament, in contemporary literature from the Roman world, we see, the, see this idea being used to kind of explain to people why they should be good citizens. A good citizen of the empire who pays their taxes, goes to work, doesn't rebel. If they do that, the literature of the time says the nation is built up or edified, becomes strong. And that's growth. So we looked at thriving a couple weeks ago, and I want to kind of make a distinction between growth and thriving because it's, it's an important distinction. And here, here's what it is. If your child is not thriving, you're sad and you want to help. If your child's not growing, you're scared and getting help because growth is vital. An organism that's not growing is an organism that's dying, and we instinctively know that, and that's why your session is passionate about growth at Sycamore. We want us to be a congregation that is growing healthy together. We value growth. So today, let's zoom in on the idea of growth with today's passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is God's word. So in church world, we're kind of familiar with these verses. We've seen them a lot. And if you've been around church world for a while, you know that people tend to lose their minds on these verses sometimes. Very often these are grabbed out of context and put in front of people as kind of the New Testament version of shape up or ship out, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Try harder. Do more. Exert yourself. Extend more effort. Get some skin in the game. And of course, judge those who aren't working as hard as you are. Last week, we read this passage as we're working our way through Philippians, and I pointed out how commas save lives because there's a comma at the end of verse 12. Very often, we read this as there's a period there. We think the, stop, the thought stops at our trembling, but the thought doesn't stop at our trembling. The thought stops at God's pleasure because he tells us, work out. Then what does he say? Because God works in you, and he really likes to do it. It's a complete thought. And when you zoom back and look at the complete thought, we see that Paul here speaks of growth. If we're talking about getting into God's family, of being rescued from our sin, from our rebellion, from our selfishness, that is nothing but God's grace. The only thing we bring to that transaction is the sin and rebellion and selfishness that required us to be rescued. That's all we bring to it is the problem. We don't participate in the solution. Our being made right with God is solely of his merciful grace in the gospel. It's solely, completely an act of God's free grace for sinners. God justifies. He makes righteous sinners by his grace alone. But passages like this remind us that God doesn't just leave us there. He wants us to grow in our faith. And part of being rescued, part of being justified is that we will grow or we will mature. And note how verse 13 guarantees such growth. But still, work out your salvation. It still kind of bugs some of us, doesn't it? 
You know, in any other context, that phrase work out doesn't confuse, right? A friend comes up to you and says, I'm going to go work out. You don't like, whoa, what does that mean? What's wrong? What's, you know exactly what you're talking about, right? So you take out the, our own salvation. Let's put our own bodies. Work out your own bodies. Some of you that is with fear and trembling. Some of you it's not. But we understand what it means, right? That's the nature of this word here. You work out what you have been given to make it better, to make it healthier, to make it stronger, to get healthy, right? For some of you, that means you want to work out to get smaller. For some of you, it means you want to work out to get bigger. For those of you in the stage of life that I'm in, it means you want to work out because you're bigger in places you want to be smaller and smaller in places you want to be bigger. I get it. That's grow, See, and the action here is us towards the word. It's us towards Jesus. It's the idea of the church as a gym. At the gym, you work out muscles you already have. And at church, you work out the salvation you already have. With God's help, together we become more and more like Jesus. That's growth. Grow is the present tense of the gospel. What is God doing in us right now? That's what Paul is saying here. We are saved by grace. We're adopted children of God, but we can be flabby, out of shape Christians. Or we can work out our salvation. We can exercise our faith. We can get healthy. That's growth. And verse 13 guarantees that God will do the work. He will work in his people. The sovereign God works for his pleasure in y'all. He doesn't merely command growth. Did you notice that? He commands it, but then what does he add? He adds in that I will empower this. I will give it. See, what this does is when you really land on this, when you really get this, this results in Christians really being committed to Jesus. See, growing Christians aren't merely just involved in church. A growing Christian is committed to Jesus. And that distinction is, it's more significant than it sounds. This is an old joke. I want to help us land there. I want to show you a picture. And boys and girls who are still here, tell me what this is a picture of. What is this? Bacon and eggs, breakfast, right? Best breakfast ever, right? So you can tell by looking at those eggs, they're cooked just right. They're just slightly over medium, so it's perfect. Yeah, so the chicken is involved with breakfast. The pig is committed to breakfast. <laughs> and that's what growth is. Being built up is being committed to Jesus. And verse 13 tells us he's committed right back. See, growing Christians care passionately about Jesus and his kingdom. They're committed to that, spreading in them and then spreading through them. So a growing Christian can absolutely be involved in politics, but they're committed to Jesus, to making him known and knowing him more. Growing Christians can be absolutely involved in current events, but they're committed to knowing Jesus and making him known. Growing Christians can absolutely be involved in their kids' education, but they're committed to knowing Jesus and making him known. That's growth. So what stops growth then? Well, sociologists today and others speak of what's called the sovereign self, a phrase you and I have never used in common conversation, I know. Maybe we've heard of uh, expressive individualism summed up by that great song 10 years ago that we can still all sing if I asked you to from Elsa from Frozen right no right no wrong no rules for me I'm free 
the national anthem of expressive individualism. So what does it do? It enthrones selfishness, calls it righteousness, claims the moral high ground, and then unleashes it into society. And in that culture, it's in the church too, unfortunately, it's all about the individual expressing themselves with no restraints. And that works against this kind of growth because the church unapologetically is a group mold that wants to change individuals. Becoming more like Jesus is not just a group project, it's a project that specifically says, oftentimes the things you want to express as an individual just aren't helpful. So stop expressing them. (laughs) Be more like Jesus. And to a culture of expressive individualism, at best that's seen as manipulation. And at worst, it's seen as a cult or even abusive. Traditions, religions, family, anything that restricts individual freedom, anything that limits self-expression has to be deconstructed, destroyed. And we bring that into church. We swim in this water. We can't help it. We get wet. Deep down, so many of us think that the church should help us find and express ourselves. I was church today. No, I didn't really get much out of it church should be the cheerleader for our group, the cheerleader for our politics. How come we don't talk about this more in church? Faith is no longer focused on something true. It's a therapeutic choice to help us become ourselves. And all of that is in us. And all of that is the unhealthy flab that we Christians need to work out. We constantly need to work out our salvation because even the Bible itself gets distorted by our selfishness and the selfishness of our time. The Bible is now judged on how well it encourages us on the journey for self-fulfillment, isn't it? See, but that's not the good news of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is rescuing a people for himself, that the triune God was not content to see his people in pain, and so he determined to save a people for himself. Christianity is a team sport, and growth is actually learning from this team by the power of the Holy Spirit to love ourselves less so we can love others more, empowered by the love of Jesus in us. That's growth. The people of Jesus in the community of Jesus actually have a claim on the individuals because in growth, Christians grow healthy together. See, what happens is our Christian expressive individualism seeks to magnify our truth using Jesus and the church. A growing Christian seeks to magnify Jesus in his church using the truth of the gospel. See, we grow healthy together as we get the gospel deeper into us. Martin Luther supposedly said, preach the gospel to yourself daily. You know why? Because Christians leak and we need it so badly. We constantly turn to our works instead of trusting in Christ. And really that is the main thrust of growth right there. Casting off our legalistic hearts our hearts that assume we have to earn God's love, our hearts that by their default setting are wired for law. If I do this, God will love me. I have to impress him with my good behavior. Look at us, we sent all those crates to Ukraine. God must like our church more. We're gonna get a little bit more grace this week. 
That's the flag we've got to get rid of and say, no, we are saved by grace alone, through the work of Jesus alone, not through our works. See, by resting in Jesus, we embrace the gracious heart of a loving God. See, this is kind of difficult for a church like ours. I'm not bragging on you guys. This is just kind of our Christian subcultures. We're really big into knowledge. We love to read theology books. We love to go to Sunday school classes, which we have excellent Sunday school classes. You should go. We love to go to things. We love to get all this knowledge of God, right? But then sometimes there's a little bit of, whoa, whoa, should we take another class? Like, no, you need to go do something with what you learned, right? So I want want to kind of give you an example of this. Boys and girls, I want you to help me out here, okay? What is this, boys and girls? It's an apple, very good, thank you. This is actually called an envy apple. This is a mixture of a Braeburn apple and a Honeycrisp apple, which means it's a really good apple. Notice how it's like nice and dark and red on part of it, but then they got the Honeycrisp part in here where it gets some yellow splotches in here. Did you know that half the world's apples, not just envy apples, but all apples, half the world's apples come from China? I, I didn't know that. They're not native to Europe, they're not native to America, they're native to what they, they're calling Western Asia. I'm pretty good at geography. I don't know what that means, so I'll let you figure that out. Um, So they're not native there. The first apple planted in North America was 1625 in Boston. Who knew? To the ancient Greeks, the apple was considered sacred to the pagan uh, mythical goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of uh, beauty, of attraction, of love. In fact, they were considered so sacred that in ancient Greece, to take an apple and throw it at somebody was to express love for them. <laughs> if they caught it, it was, they were expressing love back. And, true story, uh, apples are part of the rose family. So, guys, you know, following the logic here, next time, instead of a dozen roses, get her a dozen apples and throw them at her. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so clearly I know a lot about apples. And I've been able to teach you some things about apples. Is that it? Have we, have we experienced the apple? We know it all? Boys and girls, are we done? What else we got to do? We got to taste it. All right, let me get this right here next to the microphone. You ready? Here we go. Oh, man. Okay. That's really good. Um, I'm going to have a moment here with this apple. And, and y'all are going to look at this next slide, okay? Mm. Yeah, all right, there we go. Psalm 38, Psalm, Psalm 34, eight, excuse me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Take refuge is often translated as trust in this verse. And there's this thing in Hebrew poetry, you have what's called parallelism. So the idea of taste is parallel to takes refuge or trust, which means they're interchangeable. So what that means is what the psalmist is saying here is that what does it mean to taste that the Lord is good? It means to trust him. Not just know about him, but to trust him. Tasting the Lord means you place your trust in him. See, just like my knowledge of this apple was not complete or even enjoyable. Man, that's still a sweet apple. It wasn't until I tasted it. In growth, our knowledge of God that we keep building up becomes trust in God. We begin to taste and see that he is good. 
And trust then empowers us to thrive. That's why we, we Marty and I kind of got our calendars mixed up, so we did our values in the wrong order. That's why we have live, grow, and then thrive, because the growth in the trust of the Lord is what empowers us to thrive under the Lord. So recap, where have we been? Growth is building up the body. It's working out the salvation God has given us. It's getting swole with some gospel muscles. It's growing healthy together as we cast off more and more of our legalistic hearts. And it's embracing Jesus daily as he's offered to us all in the gospel. Your session, your officers, your elders are passionate that we drink ever more deeply from this grace-filled fountain of the gospel. Okay, that's growth. So where does growth happen? Our next question we need to ask. Well, short version, it happens, right? Yeah. In public worship on Sunday morning. Many Christians assume that well, I, real growth and maturity happens outside of Sunday mornings. It's, it's through online ministries or it's through large conferences or podcasts or one-on-ones or private devotions. But the New Testament itself insists that the local church, especially public worship, is the main context for growing Christians, for building up the church. See, growth is not a special program. It's living as the church. It's participating in the life of faith. I want to show you this from a very quick uh, verse from the New Testament, Acts 2, 42. The very ancient early church kind of gives a description of what do they do. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. A mere months, think about this, this is a mere months after the resurrection of Jesus. What do we find these ancient Christians doing? They're doing church. What we're doing right now, sitting under the ministry of the word, is being devoted to the apostles' teaching. Throughout our service, we come to rejoice in the fellowship, not just the fellowship we have with each other, but the fact that because we're in union with Christ, we have fellowship with Jesus and each other. We rejoice through that throughout public worship. The breaking of bread is something we do every, the first and third Sundays of every month. And then the whole thing is saturated with prayers. We still do Acts 2.42 to this day. They're doing church because public worship is the primary way that God builds disciples. Sunday morning is where God works out our salvation. It's here that he builds his people into deeper, more robust disciples. And Philippians 2.13 tells us that God loves, God digs, he takes pleasure in making that workout effective. So the fact of the matter is that God is present by his spirit, building up the body of Christ in public worship in a way that he is just not present in other settings. Throughout the book of Psalms, you'll find over and over again that there is either this desire asking God to do this or there's this rejoicing that God has done it, that he is present among his praising people. You can remember because all the P's in English. He is present among his praising people. And then in the New Testament, we have this idea where they take the synagogue worship system and they start replicating it into the New Testament. You can see in the New Testament that from the call to worship which is in the Bible, to the benediction, which is in the Bible, that that sacred time and sacred space and God is present in a special way that he's just not at other times. Now, I know what you're thinking because I swim in this culture too. 
the expressive individualism in our hearts rises up, says, why can't it be me and my Bible alone? I can go out on the mountaintop or the forest or whatever and worship God. And the answer is because God is building a dwelling for himself out of a people. Plural, not a person, singular. That word, Y-O-U, all over the New Testament, probably 10 times or less in the entire New Testament is that word singular. The vast majority of times, it's plural. It's y'all. But what do we do when we read it? We not only read it as singular, we read it as individual, right? We, we plug in me, don't we, when we read it. I want to challenge you as you read through the Bible in your mind to say y'all every time you come to that word and see how it changes and expands how big God's promises are to a people. And it also will help us get over this addiction to the sovereign self. We try to make ourselves the center of the scripture story. See, growing Christians, those working out and becoming healthy, rejoice to know that God is saving we. He's not just saving me. So where is growth? It flows from public worship with the body of Christ. Our final question is, how do I grow? Two very simple answers. First, show up. Show up Sunday, and then you put in effort during the week. Anybody have any friends who are in CrossFit? This means yes, this means no. Yeah, if you, if, you, if you do, you know, because those guys are worse than Jehovah's Witnesses when it comes to evangelism, I'm telling you. They're like in your face about it, right? I mean, they go to this super intense workout a couple times a week, and then they have these like accountability things throughout the week, and they have this like pressure to bring people back to class, and it's amazing. It's very cult-like. And actually, they stole that from the Bible because after you've had a really good workout in church on Sunday morning, it's a great idea to go to Sunday school. It's a great idea to get involved in the community group. It's a great idea to take what you've been worked out and then exercise it more throughout the week. Can I just say, I mean, we're an hour late, but y'all, if you haven't gone to Sunday school here, you need to go to Sunday school here. We have some great teachers here. You don't want to miss that. See, because being anchored in those things, teaching and relationships will help you grow. That's why if you visited a couple times, hopefully, you've been invited to a community group by a community group leader. And after you've gone to community group a couple times, hopefully those community group leaders have invited you to come back to Sunday school to anchor you in relationships and teaching so you can grow in the gospel. See, and then once you're established in that foundation, then of course, absolutely break off on stuff in the week. Go to a community group. Go to a Bible study. Go, have an individual one-on-one -on -one time with somebody. Go to women's ministry. Go to men's ministry. Youth Bible study. All the stuff. Show up. But it's always based on a foundation of Sunday morning where God builds disciples. So after you show up, the next thing you do is you drink up. You marinate yourself in the gospel. I'm just going to say it as plain as I can. Grace at the human level does not grow alongside the self-absorption of our current cultural moment. We have to actively pursue growth for it to happen. So you need to soak yourself in the gospel. If we give ourselves to God if we really work out our salvation, we will become more free than we can imagine. 
Think about a marriage where two rabidly individualistic people choose to take vows and give up some of that individualism to come together and be one flesh and how much more fulfilling of a relationship and a life that is because you've given up some to come together. So too, when you give up, when you work out your salvation to give yourself to God, he gives you back freedom. He gives you back freedom from fear, freedom from insecurity, freedom from the shame that drags you down. He gives you freedom to forgive others. He gives you freedom to love your neighbors as yourself and to deal with the deep suffering and disappointment of this world. He gives you all that when you embrace him in the gospel and grow and work out your salvation. See, anchored in that gospel, that gospel that says we are so broken, rebellious, sinful, and impure that the only solution was Jesus had to die for us. When we hear that, it humbles us. It puts us down. We realize I've got no good inside of me. But then we hear the other side of the gospel that we were loved, adored, wanted so much that Jesus chose to die for us. It elevates us. And then we hear the second part of that where it says not only does he elevate us, but he adopts us into his father's family so we can actually call God Father. And he is our, he's our brother. That elevates us. And anchored in that gospel, you will grow. So you can drink deeply of that gospel. You can marinate yourself in that grace. It's yours for the taking because Jesus Christ himself, he drank to the very bottom, the cup of God's wrath for our sin. When we were helpless, when we were enslaved, when we were guilty, Jesus lived the life we should have lived before that holy God to fulfill all righteousness. He then died the death we should have died before a God of justice looking at our sin and rebellion. And then his resurrection proves that these things are true and that we can embrace him by faith. And so in him, we are set free, given new life, and then he builds you up in the gospel, making you healthy, making you strong. And in him, you'll grow and you'll find joy. Now, don't you want that? then place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, either for the first time or yet again every day. (laughs) And don't wait, do it now. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, your gospel is so good, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we never get so used to hearing the message of your amazing grace that we cease to be amazed. Lord, we ask that you would once again help us to set aside our worship of ourselves, our selfishness, and instead we would yet again embrace wholeheartedly Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to make us into robust disciples that we might grow. And Lord, we pray for those here today who do not know you, that as you promise that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. We hold you to that, Lord, and we pray that you would indeed draw people to confess faith in Jesus, even in this moment, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.